Hey, good morning and welcome to Breakthrough Walls. I'm Ken Walls and I'm your host. And today I have a real life rock star, like for real. I, this woman may bust out an electric guitar or something. I don't know. She's a rock star. I have Dr. Hua Wen on the show. And I'm telling you, you want to hear her story. It's going to blow you away. So do me a favor and share this out right now. Share it out with everybody. Stay with us. We'll be right back. And we are back. Let me bring Dr. Hua. I never call her doctor. So, <laughs> Hua, welcome to the show. Thank you. How are you, Ken? I'm wonderful. It's so great to have you on here. And you um, don't have I, to call me Dr. Ken. You can call me Hua. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're going to be my doctor, you or Jaime. So, um, <laughs> Anyway, I am so grateful to have you on here. You're, um, I met you, gosh, when was it? Was it last? No, it was, it was before July, right? It was, I don't remember. I think it might've been July at, at the really? event, at the Rockstar event, maybe. Just July? July? It yeah. wasn't February? I think it was July. Oh my gosh, it seems like we've known each other longer than that. <laughs> so we were both experts at <laughs> at our own little, our own little table. And I, I remember you were walking around looking for your table. <laughs> and that's when I met you. I just thought your energy was amazing. So I'm so excited. Um, I started this about five years ago, almost five years ago. And, um, it's, it's really, it was to help people get unstuck in life, probably selfishly for myself first and, and then the rest of the world. So, um, Hua, why don't you start with telling everybody where you were born and raised? So Ken, I was born in Manila, which is in the Philippines. Okay. Um, and so we were in a refugee camp. So my parents fled Vietnam um, after the war. And so my mom was actually pregnant with me at the time. And my dad was the one who rescued 75 other people on a wooden boat, left in the middle of the night. We were at sea for seven days. I have two older brothers. And so my mom, she thought we were all going to you know, die in the waters. But we made it to the refugee camp. That's who was accepting people at the time. And that's where I was born. And then I stayed at the wow. refugee camp and I came, you know, I moved around a lot, but I came to the U S when I was about eight and a half years old. So it's from the Philippines. No, we went to the Philippines. We were there for almost a year. And then from the Philippines, we moved around to a lot of places in Germany. So, and then our family got split. 
And so my immediate family went to Germany and then my grandparents, uncle and a lot of my other relatives went to the U.S. because it was like three days apart. So whichever country was accepting refugees at the time, my family went first. Literally three days later, the rest of the family was able to go to the U.S. Um, So it took us a while before we were able to come to the U.S. So you, in other words, you started life with a silver spoon in your mouth. (laughs) Yes. A lap of luxury. (laughs) What What in the world? (laughs) So you were like, that's insane to me. That's got to be crazy to most people that are um, <laughs> in America, for sure. I mean, like that. You're right. I mean, this is, you know, and here are my parents, right? So my mom and my dad um, leaving everything behind. When you're fleeing a country, you don't take anything with you. So it's bare bones, whatever your clothes on your back and then whatever they can barely live with, right? So it's really starting completely starting over and coming to the U.S., my parents like spoke no English. My mom never had an education. And so, you know, it was really tough just trying to find work and uh, having a language barrier and whatever Mm -hmm. skill sets they had from Vietnam to try to make ends meet to raise three kids, you know? Wow. Where did they, so you were eight and a half you don't know how, do you know how many places you lived in the first eight and a half years? Man, in Germany, I think we moved around maybe about six different places. Wow. And then when I came to the States, we moved around a lot. And so, you know, throughout my course of like learning how to adapt in school, I mean, I've been to 18 different schools, Ken. Oh my gosh. So I've never, right. So we kept moving and people were you know, and so you have to learn to adapt and pivot. And so I've been in all sorts of different states and schools oh and God. environments. And, wow. But you, you build some tough skin and you learn to adapt with the environment that, and your surroundings and try to make the best of it. That's unbelievable. Mm-hmm. I, I love that, though. I absolutely I mean, not the pain you went through, but but, I, you know, look back. I mean, when you look back. Do you see it as a painful thing? No, I don't. I don't because for me, I well, there is some challenges, but I think it's a blessing still because in in when I see and travel the world, and it gives you perspective and contrast. I mean, living in America, there's freedom, and that's the whole sole reason of my parents wanting to come to America is for that freedom. And so, when you talk about the American dream and living the and all the opportunities, like I'm completely so blessed. Like our worst days here in America are better than the majority of people in other countries. And so when I travel and I go back and I see these areas, um, I'm so blessed that we have the opportunity to be here, to build that and create that. So even through my rough times and learning how to adapt, I mean, I I, can't, I call this like first world problems. Because like, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> I'm like, okay, so what, right? So yes, there there were some challenges through my journey, but it's built, those adversities built who I am today, right? And it gives me a whole bigger, wider lens of how I view the world and I view people. So I'm so blessed, like, absolutely. That's one of the things I love about you. Cause I, I, I'll never forget when I first met you, you just were radiating with this joy and big smile like you're doing now. And 
Um, I thought you were a dentist at first. <laughs> I'm like, she has perfect teeth. Oh my God. So, so, you know, when you, when you, um, got to America at eight and a half, I mean, eight and a half is old enough to, to remember everything, right? Yes. Where did you land? Where did you, where did you? Well, when we up? first landed into America, we were in Allentown, Pennsylvania. <laughs> so Allentown, Pennsylvania. So my mom, my dad, my two older brothers, so family of five, we lived in a one bedroom that we shared with a family. And so we had four bedroom house of our family of five lived in one bedroom. And so we shared that. <laughs> we were in that one bedroom sharing quarters with the rest of the family. Oh. Um, and we did that temporarily until we could find our own little apartment. Um, but you know, that that's okay. We were at least, you know, <laughs> but it was hard because I didn't speak English. I spoke German. So I, at that time I spoke Vietnamese and German fluently. You did? did. Um, and then English is my third language. And so I was made fun of because I didn't speak English. You know? <laughs> oh my God. Um, wow. I learned English pretty easily. I mean, it took me probably a, within a year. I had ESL at school. And so I remember having to be taken out of my classes so I could learn my ESL and then I get teased and whatnot. My cousins would tease me because they're like, <laughs> you know, because I was speaking wow. German at the time. But uh, it's Do you still little... speak German? No, it's been way too long. I don't remember. <laughs> I, I no offense to anybody from Germany, but it sounds like such an angry language. <laughs> yeah, learning. I mean, after learning German, English is much. I mean, learning English is a lot easier. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> we have some rock stars on here watching today. Um, <laughs> Tom Ginn says, "I wish I spoke as good of English <laughs> as you." No kidding. <laughs> No kidding. So, so I mean, yeah, in putting it in perspective, like, you know, challenges, you're like, um, you could have been born on a wooden boat in the Philippines or right. <laughs> like, well, I guess we weren't on a wooden boat, but, um, so, so, so you landed in Allentown, you guys, it sounds like you, you stayed in Allentown for at least a little bit or no? Um, very about a year. Uh, probably less than a year. And then okay. we moved to Virginia. Okay. Um, we moved to Falls Church, Virginia. And then we moved to Alexandria, Virginia. Um, and then we started migrating down to the south. We went to um, the Luxie, Mississippi. Uh, went to different places in Mississippi, Baton Rouge. Right. <laughs> migrated over to Louisiana. And so when people ask me, where are you from? Because I was like, well, there's so many different areas. So I just claim New Orleans because that's kind of where we settled. And that's where most of my upbringing, um, as far as, you know, once we settled in a bit, I was in fifth grade. Um, that was New Orleans. Okay. So question, um, why were you moving so much? What was... So my parents were just trying to find work, you know, oh. so, so my mom... She, the only skill set like really she had growing up was, you know, she didn't speak English. She wasn't allowed to go to school in Vietnam because she was a woman. Um, and so her, her parents didn't let her go to school. And so wow. she, the only thing she knew how to do was go to the market and buy and sell. Um, and my dad, and she knew how to cook because she, she was, a, you know, oldest of seven. So she cooked for the family. So she was wow. a phenomenal cook. 
my dad, he had a fishing boat, right? So he knew how to fish and shrimp and things like that. So we migrated down south because we were looking for opportunities. And my dad was trying to find work and wound up going down south to go fishing and shrimping. And then my in mom, New Orleans. yeah, in New Orleans. Yeah. And my mom knew that she could work in any restaurant, okay. right? Because she knew how to cook. So, you know, she, she knew that she could at least do some sort of work in the food industry. And wow. so that's kind of what brought us down south and just moving around trying to find opportunities. When we came to America, they were working as janitors. And wow. so, yeah. And so they were cleaning homes and hotels. Um, and that was just really hard for them because they're like, we came to America for, you know, in for American dream. And it was, they were really, it was hard. It was really hard for them to try to make ends meet. Wow. Um, so we were always struggling financially. And I'll always remember that was always a conversation. And the struggles was like, we just don't have enough money, right? And mm. so that was really hard for me because I was like, man, what can I do? Um, you know, with all the sacrifices they've done to come here, what can I do to help them at a young age? So I started working by age 10. Doing? So we started a little convenience store and a little food place in New Orleans. And so I started going out there to help my mom cook. So. I was cooking pretty early on and I helped in the kitchen. I learned how to work the cash register. I learned how to peel shrimp, roll egg rolls. I mean, I, I learned pretty much all the prep work in the food industry. My mom taught me everything. And that's what I did after school. I would go to school every day. So seven days a week, I would be at the, I would be at our little, you know, our little convenience store and we sold food there too. Wow. Um, and so I was working with them till 10, 11 o'clock at night every day school during the weekday and then you know right after school I'd go straight to work with my parents and then my dad passed away when I was 13 um, oh my gosh with my mom and the three of us um so it, we all had to work we all had to pitch in to make ends meet right and we lived in a little bitty trailer in New Orleans right so oh my we lord car, so we walked everywhere and so what people would see is in the middle of the road walking they're like hey you need a ride <laughs> what Wow. 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 So, um, good grief. Yeah. I don't need, uh, let's unpack that a little bit. Maybe. I don't know. Do we really want to go there? <laughs> I'm kidding. I mean, so, I'm an open book. You can I, ask me whatever I, you want. I know. I know. Uh, so, so you, um, now where did, where along the way did you figure out the English language? I mean, because you've got it now for sure. Where did you, at yes. what point do you feel like you started? Well, you know, academically, I remember, um, I remember ESL because I remember always being made fun of because I couldn't speak the language. And so I remember when I was uh, in my private sessions with my ESL teacher and she would read. And I came when I was, when I came here, I was in the second grade. And then um, by the third grade, I remember halfway through my third grade, my ESL teacher was reading a book to me and I, she was struggling and I had to correct her and read. <laughs> and Why she was like, I think you're doing better than I am in English. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> so Why doesn't that surprise me actually? Well, I, laugh in. I think I was pretty fluent <clears throat> in English. Wow. That is incredible. So, so I, well, I, and I'm sorry, your father passed away at such a young age. My very gosh. Young, very unexpected. 
Oh my goodness. So, so here you are 13 and, and I mean, there has to be a huge, I would think a huge thing on your shoulders. Like now I have to be here. I have to take care of my mom. I have to be in this family unit. My mom and dad, you know, what really helped Ken, even though financially we always struggled, like my mom's always been um, very like a strong, like you see me, um, she's like 10x, right? So even though she doesn't have the formal education, um, she's such a, a strong role model for me yeah. and uh, such a guiding light. She's always smiling, always radiant, always positive energy. You would never know all the struggles that she's gone through, her personal journey. Wow. And so with my dad, you know, seeing how my dad and my mom, it was a prearranged marriage, right? Like 14 my mom was prearranged to be wed to my dad, right? Wow. So she never got to school. By 14, she was engaged. By 17, they got married. Um, and so when my dad passed, like I literally sat next to my dad the morning he had passed away because he was in a sleeping position. When I, wow. you know, he rushed my mom to about purchase our home. Um, it, we were at the trailer and he really wanted us to have our first home. And so he rushed my mom to buy a home. And so we bought a little home in New Orleans, which my mom still lives till this day. She will not leave that home. It's really this year that my dad passed away. And when I woke up that morning, um, I always like my dad was like, he's sleeping like this on the sofa. And I sat right next to him and he, he looked so peaceful. He was just sleeping. And so I went to school. And my mom came out and she put his arm under the blanket um, and he was already, he had already passed away. Right. Oh my God. But, but because my dad, like he leaves such a legacy behind for me because they were such giving people, like, even though we didn't have much, I mean, we lived in a little trailer, right. They always brought home like random people to help. I always know that they had homeless people or things that they would do. And it didn't matter how little we had, they were such giving souls. And such mm. great role models and always very positive. Like they want it, like they 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 always like instilled value and hard work and ethics into us that regardless of what we do, they wanted us to be proud of that, right? Wow. So it was just really when my dad passed, like I still like he's a big I he's a big piece of part of my journey. Every milestone I, I still talk to him and I celebrate oh. with him, right? Wow. Um, but our parents are a huge thing. I was like, that's the biggest legacy that he leaves behind. So yes, a lot of the brunt of it, I feel like, yes, I had to step it up to help my mom with that. But she and herself um, is such a strong person and great role model to take on three, you know, single mom of three in America, doesn't speak English, doesn't know how to drive. (laughs) (laughs) Opening up a business, right? (laughs) It sounds like a, an unbelievable business plan. <laughs> like, and, you know, it's not like yeah. a, it wasn't like a grand business. It was like, you know, yeah. it made it, it paid the bills and put her, it, you know, it supported wow. a roof over our heads. Yeah. That's incredible. What an, un- wow. I did. Okay. I knew you had a story. I had no idea how powerful it was. This is yeah. unreal. So, so, you go to school in New Orleans and you graduate high school, I'm assuming. <laughs> yeah. um, when you graduated from high school, did you know you were going to go to college? 
Oh yeah, I was very driven academically because you know I knew that working in the restaurant industry, I mean, it's 70, 80 hours a week. It's really hard, long yeah. hours. Um, and so I knew academically, um, I excelled at that naturally. Um, yeah. And so I did well in school and, um, you know, I didn't figure out exactly what line of work I wanted to do as a profession. So, you know, I, there were so many things I wanted to do. I was like, my mom was like, I don't care what you do as long as you become, try to be your own, you know, boss and try to pick something that you'll enjoy doing. Right. Mm. And so trying to figure that journey out was like, well, you know, so she didn't say you have to become this or she should become this or that. She didn't really care. Um, but when I first, I knew I wanted to go to college. I, I did graduate top of my class as valedictorian. I had a full scholarship to Tulane. Um, and so that helped because I was like, I can't afford to, to pay. Right. So, <laughs> so I full scholarship. But I always, in addition to college, I always worked multiple jobs. Right. In addition to the family business, I also picked up extra um, internship shadowing positions to figure out what career path I wanted to do. And so I started working at an optometry practice and started, you know, interning there, working there. And then that's where I decided, you know, I think I'd like to go into optometry because when I started Tulane, I was an international. I wanted to go international marketing and management. And so I went to business school at Tulane. Wow. And then about a year and a half in, I decided I wanted to do optometry. And so I started picking up extra, you know, um, kind of switching gears a bit. So I wound up double majoring and just so I have different things under my belt so I could pivot. But I wanted to have a good um, business background in addition to becoming a doctor because I knew the ultimate goal, even going to optometry school, was I wanted to have my own practice. And I wow. wanted to have the management and marketing and the business side of them. So smart. So that's just so smart. Um, yeah. My Jill's on here saying you were wise beyond your years when you were very young. So true. Uh, okay. So, so when you first started college though, you didn't know I didn't know exactly. I mean, okay. at that time, I was still kind of like, well, I'll just take the core classes. I'll do business classes, all the accounting, yeah. you know, economics, management. And I did all of the business courses and I did yeah. some of my core sciences and things like that. Right. And so I always took 21, 22 credit hours every semester, kind of heavy load. And then I also worked at least two to three jobs in conjunction to it. So I'm used to like busy, busy, busy. Sweet. <laughs> <laughs> probably not a whole lot because i would stay up late studying right right, right. Um, so you go through you you get get through undergrad i don't know how it works for optometry i'm assuming you have to go to some sort of med school right you do for optometry school you do four years to get your bachelor's and then after that and your you know your additional testing that you need to do and then you go to four years of optometry school um, and then additional, you know, if you specialize, you do an additional from there. Wow. So you graduate, you become an optometrist um, within a week or two. You're independently <laughs> wealthy. <laughs> I'm kidding. No. 
Wait, um, so where did you go from there? Did you did you start working at another optometry practice or did yeah, you so we so I met Jaime in optometry school. So oh, in 2005, right. he was my lab partner. That's and so this we're doing eye injections. I always tell people, how did you guys meet? Oh, lab partner doing eye injections on one another. <laughs> oh. That's our love story. What is an eye injection? Just you do a saline injection. It's called a subconjunctival injection. A needle in the eyeball? A syringe in the eye. Oh, God. <laughs> well, I guess that's a good enough reason to get married. Like, I trusted him enough to jab me in the eye with a needle. Why yeah. not? <laughs> but optometry school, I mean, it's, you know, it's not easy. You know, everything is, you know, yeah. it's very, I mean, a college is one thing. Optometry school was definitely a lot harder. Yeah. Um, going through that journey and then, you know, clinicals and things like that. And optometry school, I moved to Houston to go to optometry school. Okay. I've always been one of those go-getters, <laughs> you know. And then so, but that was a point in my journey where I got really burnt out. Like I've always been on such a um, I'm just used to like that's just how I've I've all my life I'm go, go, go. Yeah. And you hit a point where you, I mean, I hit a point where I'm like, I'm so dead burnt out, right? And, and that's during get, optometry school. During optometry school. Wow. So during optometry school, it was some dark years for me. It was um, before I met Jaime, it was some dark times for me because I struggled. Um, just like I got to a point where I'm just like, man, I'm just always on the go, go, go. I'm so burnt out. Mm. Um and so when I met Jaime, like he's so, he's such a light. We're like complete uh, polar opposites, right? I'm like, man, who is this guy, right? <laughs> <laughs> Here I am always like hustling and like, you know, just go, 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 go. And like, he's such a, he was just total contrast of who I was. Um, and so at that time I was still very reserved, believe it or not, super shy, super wow. quiet. A loner. I really didn't have many. I have maybe three close, intimate friends. Besides that, I kept to myself. Um, wow. I always did my own studying. I show up for testing. I leave and go to work. I do my clinicals, but I was always to myself. I, um, but during those dark years, and so Jaime really saved me. Like really wow. meeting him um, in optometry school gave me a whole new, like this light for life again, this zest for life, because I was feeling kind of like, ugh, you know, I was like, is this all worth it? Wow. <laughs> and I was just, you know, I was just not in a happy place, honestly. When you met Jaime, I mean, you, uh, you know, obvious, I mean, he's, he's so GQ. Um, <laughs> Like, I think any woman would be like, who's this guy? <laughs> but so besides the obvious of him being a handsome fella, um, what did, did you, and did, was there an instant spark? Did you guys like, that's it? We're going to. Well, no, I mean, I was kind of to my own thing. Really oh, okay. still, even though he was my lab partner, I, it wasn't like instantaneous. Right. He figured out like what where I was going when I wasn't in class. Right. He was like, where does this girl go when she's <laughs> yeah. not in class? And so he wow. found out that what I enjoy doing when I have some time is I like to go bowling. And so he bowling. 
some bowling. And so he asked me out to go bowling. And he, he goes, how do you how do you study here? I'm like, I don't know. This is my my place of peace. And I like to bowl. I study everything there. I studied for my boards there. That's where I go. At the bowling alley? Bowling alley. What? I, do libraries. I do coffee shops and bowling alleys. <laughs> A bowling alley? Wow. And so that's how he started asking, you know, he's like, hey, you want to go bowling? And just kind of casual hanging out. And we had some friends come with us. But he was really, um, he wasn't one of those guys who tried to sweet talk me or like, you know, trying to be he took me to the hood ken like we're both come from very humble beginnings yeah. so our first date literally he took me to a houston hood the top <laughs> a little tortha stand right and it had the best tortas i've never had a tortha before and he's like a hey what? What's it called? It's, like a, it's called a tortha it's a mexican sandwich and so he takes me to this very sketchy area of Houston. He's like, hey, lock the door. I'm going to go get, I'm going to order us some sandwiches. So what? literally, so he goes, I'm watching him going to order the sandwiches. I stay in the car and I see people going back and forth. Like, and I was like, man, this is really sketchy. But I'm used to that because I grew up in New Orleans, which is like, in the area that I grew up was way sketchier. <laughs> I lived in the projects of New York. Oh my <laughs> I'm like, God. oh, I'm, I'm, I'm fine. But that's how we started. So he was very authentic. He wasn't trying to be something he wasn't. He wasn't trying to show off anything he wasn't. He was very raw and real and open to his beginnings and where his journey was. And so I was, I really appreciated that because I come from very humble beginnings, right? And so he was, he was not like a sweet talker or anything like that, which I really appreciated. <laughs> he told oh. me like it was. And I was just like, man, who is this guy? He's kind of like, you know, blunt. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, you know, how funny would it be if you found out that he secretly actually hated bowling? <laughs> he just did it for you. <laughs> no, he, he started thinking of bowling and he, he enjoyed it. But he thought that because he knew I liked it. That's so awesome though. What a good dude. So, 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 okay. Wow. That's crazy. It, what's the sandwich called again? Torta. Torta? No, Torta. It's T-O-R-T-A. Torta. Oh, tor Torta. Okay. No, you're, got... making, you're, you're making it. <laughs> Come on, Ted. I don't know. Ernie. <laughs> Uh, yeah, thanks. Now all of my Hispanic friends are going to block me. Um, so, so, all right. So you get through optometry school, you, you, and what did you, did you say what you did after that? <laughs> did we? No, I mean, we came out of school. We graduated, Jaime and I both graduated 2006. Okay. And so we come out with $350,000 of student loan debt. And so we start off our journey. We moved from Houston to Dallas. We both were offered um, a position at a private practice full time. And so we, we decided, okay, let's go ahead and work for someone for five years. Um, and then after that, we'll open our own practice and we'll save as much as we can. And so we went and moved to the DFW area town. There's Arlington. Yeah. And we moved in a little one bedroom apartment for really cheap rent and not the best neighborhood but we even though we were both making six figures as doctors at when we first graduated we were like you know we want to save we're going to live like students 
uh, because the goal is to buy our own practice in five years. And so coming out in the big negative of $350,000, can you imagine um, just trying to, and so we, the good thing is back then, student loans, the interest rates were really low. So our interest rates, we were able to lock it in at like 2.2%. And so we didn't really worry about paying off our student loan debt. We just wanted to pay um, our monthly payments and then save as much as we can. And so we didn't have lifestyle inflation. So a lot of people, the problem is you make more, you spend more. And so we didn't really care about what our peers were doing as far as having a nicer car, a nicer home and things like that. Because strategically, we wanted to build out kind of what it looked like. And so for us having, we're big planners and, and financial, uh, because we both come from humble beginnings and our parents don't have that financial background, for us, it was really important that setting that blueprint financially on the front end especially when you start making money is so important, you know? And so for us, we really budgeted big time. We were big time budgeting. And so we picked up in addition to our normal five days a week, we did what's called relief work. So any doctor in the DFW area that needed a relief doctor, we could get a few hundred dollars extra filling in for those days. And so we wound up working seven days a week most of the time because both both of you. Both of us. We yeah. alternated. We didn't get a fill-in position all the time, but both of us were always seeking extra work. And so we always pretty much stayed. I worked every Saturday and Sunday for like the first five years and then continued every Saturday for like 13 years, you know. And so so weekends, we sacrificed a lot of weekends, getaways, you know, going out and things like that because we knew at the front end, it was like we work really hard on the front end and set up our financially so that we can start having yeah. our own practices and getting the cash flow because the power to grow as a business owner, especially if you have your own clinic, is so much better. But it takes a lot of money to put that down payment and get that yeah. process yeah. going, right? And so we did that. So we worked four and a half years for someone else. We got our first practice in Dallas called iPieces. So our first location is in the West Village uptown area. So very prime spot location. Yeah. And then a couple of years after that, we opened our um, second practice, which is closer to you here, which is in the shops of Legacy in the Plano area. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, we were able to, you know, work extra, save our money. And then, you know, we bought, when we bought our first home, it's kind of crazy because we lived in that little apartment for a while and then, Right be by 2008, before the whole crash down thing, we were able to buy our first home, 135,000, 0% down payment at a wow. low interest rate, right? Um, and so we were like, okay, so that was our first home. And then after we you know, got our second practice, then we sold that home and moved over to Plano and bought that home. Um, and so, you know, it was just utilizing, um, but our lifestyle, like Jaime, I, I still joke about it because <clears throat> people are like, when are you going to buy Jaime a new car? I was like, he can buy it, whatever car he wants to buy. But he right. still buys his 2004 Toyota Sequoia with like oh 350,000 miles. Like now it's, I brag about it because I'm like, that's a good car. He, he still drives that? He still drives it. 2004 <laughs> Toyota Sequoia. 300, I think. 
something thousand miles an hour. Oh my God, that's uh, it's the best car. And <clears throat> I still drive my 2008 car, but it drives great in low maintenance, you know. But it's because it's not an appreciating asset, you know. So I, okay, about, so so. I am definitely unpacking all of this. So let's just back up for a minute. I want to talk about that because first off, the discipline and humility that is required to do what you guys have done and what you're still continuing to do. <laughs> I mean, this guy right here sells new cars. You may want to write down his name and phone number. <laughs> He's going to get a new car, okay? <laughs> <laughs> Ernie's in California, but so, so that's unbelievable. The discipline, I, I think that, cause I know a lot of people that are, you know, dentists and optometrists and all, all kinds of doctors and they come out of med school. Yes. They have two, three, $400,000 in, in, in debt, but they immediately go, I got to have a new Jag or a, whatever it is, right? I got to have the stuff to, to keep up with the Joneses and, and, and all that. And here you guys are still, and I know what you've done now, like, holy crap, step aside, Grant Cardone. Um, but <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I love Grant, but, but, you know, like, like I know what you've accomplished and you're still driving around in these, these, I'm not saying beaters, but <laughs> <laughs> some people might. <laughs> it's unbelievable. No, but you know, for us, we, you know, I think everyone has to, whatever brings you joy. Right. And so our joy comes from traveling the world. Right. Yeah. And so we love to travel and you'll see us always on the go. People are like, do you work? Because we travel all the time, right? But yeah. now it's a different phase of our, when we were working in our optometry practices and building our practices. I always tell people you're in different seasons of your journey. And so don't judge your journey by someone else's season, right? So yeah. when, when we put in our hard work, we put in our time, right? And so right. now we fought that time. Now we have the financial and time freedom, but on the front end, we have that level of discipline in order to set up the ground. And I always say delayed gratification. But yeah. what we always did do is we still always did things we enjoyed. And traveling is one of those things that I find is an experience that creates memories and perspective that that for us, that brings us joy. Right. Yeah. And so that's how we spend our money. You know, here. And you do travel. We travel. <laughs> To some nice places. Yeah. Weren't you just in Bali or so? where were you? Right? I was in Japan. We were in Japan for two and a half weeks. And so, you know, now we travel, we, we get to travel the world, you know, but we didn't do that on the front end as much. We traveled, but not, you know, as much time. We, back then it was the time issue. Even after we made some money with our practices, the constraint is always the time. You know, and that's what a lot of doctors fall into. It's like, okay, now I'm trading time for money and I'm tied to my practices. If I'm not there and producing the money, then the practice doesn't make money, right? Right. And so it's like, okay, how do I scale my optometry practices and how do I work smarter, right? Oh. And be able to free and buy back my time because now I've got an eight-year-old daughter that I would love to actually spend time with because I can't buy that time back with her. And that's why right. the whole pivot of real estate came into play. 
So talk, let's, let's get, let's get into that a little, some here. Let, so at some point, um, and I can't wait to hear this part at some point, you guys are, are struggling along in your 2004 cars. <laughs> We're not struggling. It's still a nice car. We're very proud of it. <laughs> I'm, I'm just playing. Um, so here you are like, but I, the humility is what just touches my soul. I love that about you. Um, so you're, you're, but you're, you're doing the optometry practice thing. You're building, you've got the two locations. At what point did you decide, you know, maybe we should consider getting into real estate? Yeah. You know, real estate was one of those, right. When my daughter was born. So Jaime and I were together 2000 since 2005, right. Okay. We got married in 2009. We had our daughter in 2014. So 2014 was a pivotal year for us after our daughter was born because it took us a while to have her. And so once I had my daughter, I was like, man, priorities really shifted. And I was like, man, how can I spend more time and do well both in my career, right? Um, but also be a good mom so that I could be there with my mom and be there for her milestones. And so Jaime and I were trying to brainstorm ideas and he was like, should we buy more practices? And I'm like, absolutely not. Two is plenty. And so I really, you know, then real estate came up and I was like, okay, we know real estate is the vehicle of building wealth. Like that's all out there. We keep reading about it. We keep hearing about it, but we didn't know how to get started in the world of real estate. There's so much different types of real estate out there. Yes. So we started attending um, a lot of different boot camps, live, you know, live events, learning single family, learning, you know, uh, different asset classes, flipping, wholesaling, uh, land, um, uh, listening to podcasts, reading books. And so all the stuff that was out there. And so and then so we the first asset class we actually bought, surprisingly enough, we went to Belize. And um, I did a girl's trip over there and absolutely fell in love with Belize, one of the islands over there. And I said, you know, it's really behind on the times. I see a lot of potential there. And so yeah. our first real estate investment was, wasn't even in the U.S. It was in Belize. No <laughs> so, way. No, yeah. And so oh this was 2015. We go, we explore Belize. I loved it, went back and forth, back and forth, met with brokers, um, did a market analysis over there, did a couple of field, real estate field trips over there, and then decided, okay, let's start investing and buying land and building a home and do Airbnb. And then we invested in a resort and started buying more lots of land. Are you serious? <laughs> and, oh. so we, um, and so we did that and then Eventually, we started learning about multifamily, but, you know, everything we did in Belize was all our own money. We didn't have <clears throat> investors or anything partner with us. We It was solely our own money. While we were learning the business, learning the ropes, we invested. We did everything ourselves. Um, but we learned a ton when you're doing and you're working with the contractors and you're learning the permit process. You're learning the architectural process, the design process. So it was fun. We got to handpick and do all of that. Um, wait, did you say, did you just say that you built a resort? No, no, no. The resort we invested in, the house we built. 
the Airbnb home. We had. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. But oh, the resort was a brand new resort. So we invest in that. So we learned the ropes of all that new development project. Wow. In Belize. Uh, in Belize. And so we go to Belize every few months. We, we go back there a lot and it's grown a lot, you know, um, but our sweet spot really, cause you know, we were learning land. We, uh, we learned uh, Airbnb. We didn't wind up flipping any homes, but we learned about apartment communities um, and we learned about what's called uh, syndications, uh, yeah. multifamily syndications. And so when we started doing that uh, back in 2018, 18, um, mm -hmm, 18. 2018, we started doing multifamily investing and that was a syndication was now, okay, instead of just being our own money, it was our money where we partner with other people, you know, to buy larger properties. And so that's how we were able to buy these large assets, you know, otherwise if it was just Jaime and I, there's no way we could buy a 50 or $70 million apartment community, right? right. These syndications, that's what kind of uh, catapulted and like exponential growth in wealth building. That's the sector that helped us was the multifamily. Okay. So investing in a, a, um, a, a resort certainly didn't teach you how to do syndications where in the, and what, at what point are you sitting around in your driving down the road in your 2004 rogue and, and you're like, Hey, Jaime, I have an idea. Um, I think we should buy this $70 million property over here. <laughs> and figure out how to do it. Like, no, where no. did this come from? Yeah. And so, you know, part education is huge. We invest heavily in education and getting into the right rooms, right? Uh, yeah, and so once we yeah. learn who are the multifamily big players, right? Who are the big people in the space? Um, and we need to get into those rooms. And mm. so we invest heavily into our mentorships and yeah. our mentors and coaches and being in the right room. And the the honest truth is until you actually do your own deal and you partner and leverage someone with experience to kind of handhold you through that process, yeah, that's when you truly learn. Because you can read all you want. You can listen to as many webinars and podcasts as you want. But until you actively pursue and do your deal. So when we started, we passively invested into these syndications so we can get to know people. It's such a relationship business. Yeah. And so we intentionally invested into these ecosystems where we were in close proximity with the heavy hitters. Right. And so we wanted to like, okay, we made a list of these are the people we would like to partner with. Yeah. Right. And so we yeah. would passively invest with them with the hope that one day they would have enough trust and we would learn the way that they operate since now we're passive investors. We would learn, understand how they do business and see if they're, values align with us. And so that's how we started off was we passively invested before we transitioned and partnered with them to be active partners. When when you say passively invested, the, the, you were investing in their funds or 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 correct. And so a hundred hundred thousand or whatever. Right. So fifty thousand or a hundred thousand, whatever the project, okay. you know. And yeah. so we would depending on if it fit the you know if it fit our criteria. Yeah. Of the right market and asset class or whatnot, and the teams we we like the teams or whatnot, then that would be something we would invest. And we get monthly reporting 
So we right. were more, you know, just passively looking at the financials and things of that nature. Um, but did you, did you really, do you, were you, um, because you're right, there's, there's, it's one thing to, to read a book about injecting an eyeball with a needle. I've been doing it, it, right? It's another thing to actually inject an eyeball with a needle. Right. So, so did you, did you, were you confident? Like the first couple of times where you like, yeah, here we go. Um, there's always a level of, you know, oh, there's something, and you know, right. but you do your best as far as your due diligence, right? Yeah, there's yeah. always a sense of, man, is this the right one? Is this the right one? And I have such a strong gut instinct that I always go by my first instinct. If it's, mm. a, if it's not an absolute yes, um, then it's a no for me, right? Really? Mm -hmm. And so Jaime will tell you, like, we'll go through different, this, this is the same for all our practices. When we, we looked at 20 something practices before we bought ours and even our properties and things like that, I'll go, go, go. And he's like, how do you know within the first three minutes? Yes or no? Like we haven't looked at all the financials. I'm like, if my gut tells me, no, I don't need to look at the financials. <laughs> wow. That is so awesome. Um, yeah. And so, but you do, you have to have the backbone to de-risk every investment and yeah. every, every business, even as an entrepreneur, yeah. as being a practice owner, it, it there's a lot of um, risk involved, right? But to, yeah. to lower the risk, right. Um, is to do as much homework and be as well educated about it. And that's why we invest so heavy in our education to yeah. learn the, the, foundation so we know we understand what is aggressive underwriting what is conservative how do we properly vet things and so we had to put our time and money into that we've wow. well invested in addition to our optometry 350,000 debt we've well invested over another $350,000 into our real estate education and getting into the right rooms and masterminds and um, yeah. that whole world, right? So, you, you know, there's always a saying you have to pay to play. Yep. Um, and it's true, but it put us into the proximity in the right rooms for us to be able to partner to make these deals happen and to learn and kind of like compress timeframes. You know, we learn, you know, even people are like, how can you have done that since 2018 to build a portfolio the way that you guys have built it, right? It's because we were in the right room around experienced operators that we've learned and kind of compress that time frame and asking the right questions the right question you have to learn yeah. and that's yeah. a process and it's always still do you do we still get scared every new project we still have a sense of okay you know we we have to uh, you know really go over and over and make sure that this is something because now it's not just our money it's investors money that put their trust in us too so there's always a sense of okay is there anything else? Is there anything else? Anything that we can de-risk as much as we can, right? And and can we talk about your portfolio? Right. <laughs> <laughs> it's on. Well, it's in the 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 you know the the um, description of the show. You're at f almost five hundred million dollars in in real estate. Assets. We've exceeded that now because we did um, some more projects that we haven't added on to that number. We had closed um, in December, but yes, but you know those numbers—they're not all ours, right? These you know four hundred eighty. Now we're at five hundred eighty million, but those are you know they're syndications, so I we're only part ownership of that. But still, those are 
those are a lot of those are those are assets that we are general partners in, right? And so wow. we do a lot of the heavy lifting. Um, and then we have a bunch that are more as if you had to count what we have passive and active together, the portfolio is even a whole, whole lot larger. But that's just actively what we have assets under management as general partners. But, you know, it's a, with with that comes a lot of responsibility, right? Because a lot of people <laughs> put a lot of their money in trust. Yeah. But because we put our own skin in the game, our money, our time into alongside um, our investors too, right? And so for us, when COVID happened, when, you know, people talk about recessions and people are like, aren't you scared? Real estate, as soon as people hear real estate, they're like 2008 recession, you know, aren't you scared of all that right now? So it's it's about mitigating some of that risk. And so multifamily, when you kind of compare it to like new, you know, like commercial retail or hotel or resorts and things like that, yeah. COVID took a bigger hit on those asset classes, whereas apartments really didn't take as much of a hit because right. people always need a place to live. It's a primary need for residential living. So it's a little bit different. And as long as you're in, you, you know, it's underwritten conservatively. You're in a prime market where there's good growth. And, you know, DFW is a great market. It's right here in our backyard. Yeah. Um, Houston's a really great market. And so we look at all of those things. But is there a gut, like, is there a little bit of fear involved each time still? Absolutely, Ken. If anybody tells you, no, it's all easy peasy, they're lying. They'll lie to you about other things too, right? <laughs> because behind every project, even closing, Closing the last three projects in 2022 was not an easy thing. Really? Every multifamily project, um, for us to be able to close on time the way we were able to close um, is not the norm for most multifamily operators in 2022. With the increase in interest rates and things of that nature and lending, um, a lot of teams, instead of a standard 60 days, uh, 60 to 75 day closing, there's a lot of teams out there five to six months still trying to close wow. um, because of all the lending and going back and forth with the seller and things like that. And so, you know, to be able to close properly, you know, um, by December, we were extremely ecstatic. We were able to make it a smooth transition. But the last three, because of lending and interest rate increases and things like that, um, it was a lot of hard work on the GP team trying to make everything um, close out properly. So let me ask, because I mean, gosh, now we're talking, you know, there are people watching right now um, that j just can't wrap their brain around half a billion dollars like that. That's a lot. That's a lot. Um, <laughs> I, I just can't. I, I, I've got to go have lunch with Jaime and convince him to get a new car. Um, <laughs> I can't wrap my brain around. You will get a new car this year, Ken. You will okay. be happy to know. You will get a new car. A Toyota Camry. So <laughs> anyway, um, but the, the you know, for somebody watching that's like really inspired. I'm inspired by you. You you and Jaime are um just two of my favorite people on this planet. Oh, I appreciate it. 
for somebody watching that that can't wrap their brain around what you're doing like it's it's huge like a 70 million like you you're now sitting here talking about 70 million dollar deals that like those are big big deals right so what if somebody wants to get started in real estate investing and they don't know where to start like you were where where do you where do they start what's the jumping off point so it really depends on there's so many factors involved when you want to start in the real estate journey so you have to consider how much uh, time you have you have to, if you want to actively be part of the real estate investing or do you want to be a passive investor to let somebody else with experience uh, leverage that money to put to work for you and you can still be a part owner um, if you want to be hands-on then you have to decide how much money do you have you know when you get into these syndications, most of the times you have to at least have 50,000 to 75,000. So if you're starting it in the real estate and you're like, well, I don't have 50 to 75,000, then maybe you can go, most people go into this, the real estate space doing wholesaling or flipping and they can do a smaller amount. So really there's a whole list of questions mm. that you have to go through to see where can you start. And then you can always leverage if you didn't have the money, but you had the time and you have different skill sets. So it also depends what kind of skill set, where do you live? Because you can always partner. The key to real estate is partnerships and teams. And so if you can mm -hmm. partner with someone with experience and if you can either put in the money, you can put in the time, you have a skill set that you the team can leverage. Those are all things that you have to be like, uh, you have to add value to a team to help them. But it, it, don't let the money part um, or the time part kind of stop you from getting into the real estate game. You know, right. yes, you have to right. get educated and you have to get educated in the right lane. So if you're wanting to do single family, you have to find a mentor who's successfully doing single family or Airbnb successfully. If you want to get into multifamily syndications, then you have to find someone who's successfully doing that in that space. So I, I can't say one person can just listen to a general thing or read a general thing because real estate is very fine-tuned depending on to what asset class you're in. And so when you're right. starting off, you've got to have to kind of figure what role and how active and how what time commitment and what money commitment you know you have. And I always kind of, so when people have a call with me and they're like, well, cool, I want to get started. So then I kind of walk them through that process and where they are and if multifamily is the right thing for them or they need to be in another asset class of real estate, build up some money and equity and skill sets before they can transition into multifamily. You know, so a lot I, of people- I have, I, I have a friend in, in New, I don't know if he's in New Orleans. I think he's in, he's in Louisiana, but the, Chris Rude, do you know Chris? I don't know if you know Chris Rude or not, but he he buys mobile home parks, <laughs> like a lot of them, right? Yeah. So the there's all these, and I think about like you know, and I made a, a funny comment on um, uh, one of your posts about one, one uh, you closed on something 170 units or that's I a lot of toilets that Jaime has to manage. <laughs> I, I said that's a lot of toilets for Jaime to fix. Or we something. are not yet. We're like, no, we are not the landlords. Right. But I think about that. Like I've always thought, wow, because my brother-in-law owns like 500 properties or something. But I thought 
I watched him. He's like killing himself, like going in there and, and remodeling. And I don't know anything about that. I, our toilet clogs. I have no idea. Like, <laughs> Hey, I, I yell at Jill. Hey, the toilet's clogged. <laughs> I'm kidding. But like, right. what, what, what about that? How do you circumvent? I guess it really, it, it all boils down to where you are. Like you were saying, like, right. What so when class. you're starting off and you're doing single family and if you're doing your own and you don't have the capital to, you know, hire someone else to do it, you're hands on, you're doing it to save all the money so that you have right. cash flow to pay for the property. Right. But if you're doing multifamily, you're doing syndication, it is a third party professional management company. And so it's not one of those, you know, um, you know, where you're having to call the tenant or you have to fix, you know, fix toilets or, deal with evictions and things like that. Your management company does that. And you just have an asset manager that overlooks everything from wow. the management team. But, you know, you're not the hands-on doing all of the things that people deal with. They're, when people hear real estate, they're like, well, I don't want to fix homes. I don't want a tenant to call right. me. I don't want to deal with, like, having to evict a problem tenant and, you know, right. and things like that. So it's different. It's a different model. And that's why, but I, I saw someone wrote in here, Think and Grow Rich, right? Yeah, Tom. Yeah, that's right. Mindset, a huge, a huge part of uh, the foundation of what my own journey it is. It's a huge part of mindset and yeah. having that drive and that grit, grit and mindset and putting into action. I just say take action. And I think that's the biggest thing is analysis paralysis. People just get scared and they let fear hold them back because yeah. they're not they don't have that mindset and grit and take action like just take action to move the needle forward you can adjust and pivot and fine tune but you yeah. have to get the ball rolling have have you ever and and you just answered a question i was getting ready to say what do you think holds most people back you just answered that before i said it and i ask that question on every show um the other thing is you know i, I mean when jill and i opened up our first office 13 years ago or whatever it's been 2008 nine ish um we went through some really 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 rough times i had a car repossessed in front of all my employees once that was a fun day yes that was just lovely so you know but i i think about like what about the people who are are struggling maybe even paying their bills, their utilities or what, and they, but they, they, they can't figure it out how to get life going in the right, right direction. What do you say to them? Have you guys ever had those oh, yeah. struggles where you're oh, like, how are we going to make payroll this week? Absolutely. <laughs> you know? uh, when we first started and even when we first purchased our own practice, I mean, there were days, Ken, we bought the practice from another doctor all old equipment falling apart. Um, and so we had to invest in buying new equipment. We had to put a lot more money into it. And then at that time, we were not busy when we bought that practice. I, we bought that practice pure location wow. because we saw the potential for what the practices could be. It was not doing well when we bought the practice. Right. Uh, it, we just thought they were prime locations. And we're like, we can build and create the but there were days where I would have maybe one patient or two patients on the books. Oh, wow. I'd be sitting there all day. I would never leave early. I was like, I would worry about how am I going to pay my staff this week? So Jaime and I never paid ourselves at the beginning of our journey, right? 
it was all just investing it back into the practice. And there were times where we're just like, I don't know if we're going to make payroll this week, right? And so in the stress of being your own practice owner, it's like, okay, we've got rent. We have prime locations with high rent. Yeah. And if we don't make, if we don't figure something out, <laughs> we're not going to pay our staff. <laughs> right. So right. I understand the stress of living, living that, yeah. not just paycheck to paycheck. When you're the employer and not the employee, living paycheck yeah. to paycheck. I'm like, I have to pay my staff. Right. right. And keep the doors open to this practice we work so hard for. Right. And so budgeting is one thing, but creative. It's much easier to find ways to make more money than it is the ways to save more money. Right. So if you can yeah. do it in conjunction, if you can budget, the thing is, most people focus on if they're going to spend like they can cut down on budget. There's only so much you can budget and cut down on expenses. You have to use your mind to be more creative. How yeah. can I create more income? And so opening Love those it. doors, how do I create multiple streams of income within my own business, my core business? And then after I have my core business and cash flow, how can I make that money multiply and keep growing my money? We call it pregnant money. How can I make money grow money, right? But you have to shift your mindset to not just a a scarcity mindset, but to the abundance mindset of like, there's, there's other ways to create multiple streams of income. And so we started, we started doing that in our practices. And so I, I encourage someone who's struggling with whatever you are, whatever position of your, your own business or your employee, there are ways you can do online sales. You can do online things. I did that all the time. Create a course, sell something online. There's other ways to make income, you yeah. know, find some other thing you can add value. Everybody has a unique skill set that yes. they can monetize on. If they can add value to someone else's life and help solve a problem, you can make more money. In addition to whatever your full-time job is. Boom. I mean, do you have a microphone handy that you can just drop right now? (laughs) I mean, that is so true. Wow. Listen, I, I, I respect and value your time. And we have been on here over an hour now. I could sit here and talk. Can you believe that? It went like already. I know. I, I like I could talk to you literally all day because I love everything that you're saying. If there's somebody watching that, I mean, are you guys mentoring people yet? It got cut off a bit, Ken. Say oh, that again. Sorry. Are you mentoring people yet in the real estate? So I don't take on, I haven't taken on personal mentees yet, which I'm considering because a lot of people have personally reached out. I do a lot of free consultation. Honestly, I meant, I mentee, um, I mentor for free. A lot of people. Um, what's your, said. what's your website? Um, it's passivewealth23.com. Passive wealth. Oh, you just remind two, three, right? Three dot com. You just reminded me, you know what you reminded me of, right? That I need to ask you about. There it is. Yeah. So I I always, um, I always welcome one-on-one calls. And then if someone's like, you know, needs a little direction and guidance and if what's right for them or not in the real estate world, or if they just want some, not even in the real estate space, but they just want some 
guidance and mindset or resources and books I've read or what I've done to help me, I'd be more than happy to help. Wow. Hua, and and as as sweet and nice as Hua is, Jaime might be even sweeter and nicer. <laughs> Uh, I'm just kidding. He is my lover, so you know. <laughs> oh my gosh, unbelievable! You guys are absolutely amazing. I am so so honored to have had you on here today. I wish we could go all day. Honestly, I do. <laughs> Thank we, you we, so much, Ken. Really, oh, really appreciate this. Thank you. This has been phenomenal. And my wife just said, everyone needs to share this <laughs> interview with everyone they know. This is pure. It really has been amazing. You are, you know, here you are a, you know, um, Vietnamese, Filipino, German. <laughs> like, that, that has that came to America under the most dire of circumstances and, and you've made it and you're still making it. And your, your, your heart is so pure and, and you're just good people. And I'm honored and grateful to know you and call you friends. Oh, thank you, Ken. Really appreciate you so yeah. much. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you. All right. I'm going to, begrudgingly end this. I don't want to end this, but I, I, we need to. So, um, everybody watching, please make sure you've shared this out. Don't be selfish, share this out. <laughs> and, and Hua, thank you so much again for being on today. You're amazing. Thank you, Ken. And everybody watching, have a wonderful day. I'm going to end the live stream now. Thank you so much, Hua. Thank you, everyone. Uh, Thank you. Bye-bye.